This is another iRaw podcast. Hi, welcome to Storytelling Animals, a green new podcast where we use books to help make sense of the ecological crisis and what comes next. Um, I'm your host, Dayton Martindale, and today my guest is the Reverend Tom Emmanuel. Uh, Tom is a reverend ordained in the United Church of Christ. Um, he is also a big fan of the work of J.R.R. Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. First off, my whole life I've been saying J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, I understand it's more like Tolkien, so going to try to be better on that throughout the podcast, but um, don't blame me if I pronounce it differently. Um, and second off, uh, Emmanuel is about to head off to get his PhD uh, studying the work of Tolkien, um, and he has taught online classes, uh, reading the Lord of the Rings and associated works from a progressive perspective, looking at queer themes, ecological themes, um, other progressive themes in the work. Um, as this is storytelling animals, uh, our main focus will be on the ecological themes and how, um, trees and animals and other types of beings manifest themselves in this world, uh, and the wonder we can find there and also lessons about hope and resilience and other issues we're also briefly going to talk about um the rings of power which is the new amazon prime streaming tv series at the time of this recording at the time of episode release there have only been two episodes out so far um so if something happens in the third episode that totally changes everything we said um please don't hold that against us uh i say in the interview and i say now that I do sort of regret doing uh, PR of sorts for a venture of the corporation Amazon, which would be which should probably be either destroyed and or nationalized. But here I am. I really like Lord of the Rings. The story means a lot to me. I talk about it more in the in the discussion with Tom. Um, and yeah, also um, you know we're we're both Tom more than me are, are but uh, we're both somewhat familiar with. Uh, the arc of the story of the Second Age of Middle-earth, which is what uh, the TV show is going to cover. Um, we don't know exactly what will happen because the TV show is also, you know, expanding and making stuff up, um, as is its right. But um, some of our discussion will touch on things that will probably happen later in the show. If you don't want to know anything of the sort, um, you can just skip Tom's answer to my question about the Rings of Power. Okay, um, just a couple quick housekeeping notes before we get started. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast, um, please like, follow, subscribe, give us a rating, um, especially if it's a high one, but I value your honesty as well. Um, and yeah, you can sign up for my free weekly newsletter. Um, the link is in the episode description, and that way you'll get new episodes in your inbox, along with links to uh, you know the best thing I read each week. And um, also you'll get updates on the Storytelling Animals Book Club, uh, which meets September 29th, a Thursday at 8.30 Eastern, to discuss The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler next. Um, and there's a bunch of other books coming up. You can see more at my website. And yeah, I hope you come to book club. I hope you consider even supporting this podcast on Patreon with a monthly uh, donation to keep it running. Uh... And most of all, I hope you enjoy this episode.
Hi, I'm here with the Reverend Tom Emanuel. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Dayton. Yeah, so um, I thought maybe we could just start with um, what is your relationship? How did your relationship start with Middle Earth and the works of Tolkien? My father read The Hobbit aloud to me when I was too young to remember. The first film I can ever remember seeing was the 1977 animated Rankin-Bass Hobbit. I read The Lord of the Rings for myself for the first time when I was 10 years old, uh, about six to eight months before Peter Jackson's films came out. Middle Earth has been the groundwork of my imaginative architecture since before I can even remember. So it's been a lifelong love affair with this world and with the uh, the characters and stories in it. And I understand you're actually going to be studying it in grad school pretty soon. I am, as a matter of fact. I'm, uh, in addition to a minister, I'm a doctoral student at the University of Glasgow, where I'm focusing on J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings fandom and uh, post-Christian spiritual community. So Cool. Um, so... You know, today I want to talk a lot about the the ecological and the more than human aspects of the world. Um, but to ground that, I I maybe first wanted to ask about power and mm. what power signifies in the world. Um, in a in a letter that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, he said that power is an ominous and sinister word in in all these tales, except as applied to the gods. So what what is the role of this conception of the desire for power, meaning the desire for control over others, for domination, um, as Galadriel puts it in the opening monologue of the Fellowship of the Ring movie, um, Sauron pours into the One Ring his cruelty, his malice, and his will to dominate all life. Um, so what role does this conception of power play in, in making sense of the story? So to understand Tolkien's treatment of power, we need to understand uh part of his cosmology, not just in, in Middle-earth, but his understanding of humans as created uh, in the image and likeness of a creator. Now, you don't have to share Tolkien's Catholicism, but understanding his view that humans are quote-unquote sub-creators, so we can't call the universe into being out of the void ex nihilo, but all of us have the power to create, to tell stories, or to make art, or to craft communities, to build objects, that part of what it means to be human is to be able to influence the world around us and to take part in an unfolding creativity. And what Tolkien says about that is, this is, this is a freedom that we're given, a power that we're given, or that we have as the result of simply being the, the animals that we are in the world. And it's, it's a power that can be used or misused. It is what allows us to tell stories of meaning and value. It's what allows us to, to build communities, to create rituals, to make art and music and all the things that make life beautiful and worth living. But it's also the power that enables us to build atomic bombs and tanks and uh, tear up the Earth and use it as a means of accruing more power. And so for Tolkien, the 
the issue of power comes down to what it, what is the end to which it is being put? Is it is it being used in harmony with the wider creation? Is it being used to increase the overall beauty and wonder of the world? Or is it being used to dominate other wills? Because when it's being used to dominate other wills, that's Tolkien's conception of evil. That's Sauron. That's the Dark Lord Morgoth. That's, that's the way that evil functions in Middle-earth, first and foremost, as domination over others. Mm-hmm. And I should say that, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to give kind of a brief overview of my own relationship uh, with Middle-earth. For me, I think it did start with the movies. The first one came out when I was eight of the Peter Jackson uh, movies. And I actually, I first tried to read The Fellowship of the Ring then. Um, I, I don't, re- I probably read The Hobbit around then too, but I tried to read The Fellowship of the Ring. And there's a lot of stuff that in the first half of that book or the first third of that book that's not in the movie. Um, and you uh-huh. get these asides with characters like Tom Bombadil, who I'm going to ask about later, um, that eight-year-old me was kind of like, where's Aragorn? Um, and so I, I put it down and then returned to it again a couple years later, around the time that the third movie, Return of the King, came out. Uh, you know, I, I loved the, the movies. I watched Return of the King three times in theaters as a 10-year-old or whatever. And and then I went back to the books and I was able to to get through them read all three, went and read The Silmarillion, uh, and then, you know, I got all these at Barnes & Noble, you know, Book of Lost Tales and other um, collections of, of Tolkien texts that were edited by his son, um, and again, kind of hit a bit of a wall of how much I was able to get through as a 10-year-old. Um, those are very heavily footnoted and edited. Uh <laughs> and a different reading experience than the main trilogy or even than the Silmarillion. Um, But I did, I mean, obviously I enjoyed them enough to, to want to read the lost tales and, um, but didn't really return to, I, I would watch the movies again and again. And so they're ultimately what I'm more familiar with, um, but didn't return to the books again until maybe a little over two years, two and a half years ago, uh, right around the beginning of the pandemic. Um, And I reread, the Hobbit, Silmarillion, and all three Lord of the Rings books, uh, with kind of a special eye toward these issues of ecology and animals, um, and really got a lot out of them. Um, and so I, yeah, I'm, I'm part of, uh, what I want to do in this interview is just kind of highlight some quotes or sections that stood out to me, um, in my read and kind of get your, your thoughts and responses as well. Um, and so anyway, all of that is to say that you talking about, um, you know, humans as, as sub creators and, and, and what we put that power toward, um, reminds me of, uh, Treebeard the Ents, uh, description of the wizard Saruman as someone with, quote, a mind of metal and wheels, and he does not care for growing things except as far as they serve him for the moment. Um, and in the Hobbit, he talks about, he says, goblins make no beautiful things, but they make many clever ones. Um, and there is sort of this, yeah, idea that, um, these evil powers create in ways that are very industrialized, um, and kind of high tech and that this does not always serve the good. Uh, and I'm, yeah, I guess I'm curious sort of 
you mentioned nuclear weapons and stuff, but just kind of historically, when is Tolkien writing this and what is his take on the sort of progress of industrial modernity? Well, the short answer to that question is he's not a fan. <laughs> uh, so Tolkien was born in 1892 and he grew up during the tail end of the European Industrial Revolution. He came of age uh, at the outbreak of the First World War, uh, which was sort of, you know, one of the apotheoses of these industrial processes that had been building up more and more sophisticated weaponry and expanding into more and more global capital markets and, and colonialism and, and imperial expansion, and then the bloodbath of one of the most spectacularly pointless wars in human history. Then living beyond that, becoming an Oxford professor during the 1920s and into the 1930s, living through the deepest crisis of capitalism so far, the Great Depression, uh, living through the Second World War, the birth of the Atomic Age, The Lord of the Rings comes out in the mid-1950s, after having been composed from 1937, 1938, until about 1950, 1951. And so Tolkien has lived experience and memories of a time before industrial modernity had quite taken over the world. He grew up in the West Midlands of England, in and around Birmingham, which is famous as a factory town, but he grew up in the outskirts of Birmingham, where the factories hadn't quite gotten yet. And as he got older, the expansion of, of England's industrial economy ate up a lot of the places that literally paved over or built farms and factories over the places that had been dearest and most important to him. And so his whole life is marked by a profound distrust of the processes of industrialization and particularly the ways in which they progressively take humans away from a relationship with land and with place and with language. Tolkien was a professor of Old and Middle English. He was fascinated by words, by languages. That's where a lot of the Middle Earth stories come from, is his fascination with building languages of his own. But but Tolkien saw the way that sort of pushing people into cities and increasingly industrializing and technologizing our lives was separating us from the ties to a more-than-human world that had structured human existence for millennia, hundreds of thousands of years. And he saw this as largely a destructive process, largely one that dehumanized us, that destroyed the natural world of which we were a part, and for him, as, as a Catholic with deep creation spirituality sensibilities, separated us from the spiritual element and from, from God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this, you know, in the books, this this idea of evil as kind of a desire for power over others um, is inevitably corrupting. Um, in the Silmarillion, which is kind of this, uh, I believe, a posthumously published um, prequel of sorts telling of the, the first age of Middle-earth, where the Lord of the Rings is the third age. Um, the You mentioned the Dark Lord Morgoth, uh, Watchers of... The Rings of Power show, uh, saw Morgoth briefly mentioned, but he's kind of the, the evil Dark Lord of the First Age. And um, you know, when he builds his stronghold, 
Tolkien writes that the blight of his hatred flowed out thence. Green things fell sick and rotted, and rivers were choked with weeds and slime. Um, it's not, I think, that hard to see the metaphor with uh, those effects on the land you were talking about. And yeah, I, I think in in a similar way, this evil has a corrupting influence on the people who are evil and even just the people around it. Uh, because like the one ring has an effect on the wearer, even, you know, Frodo doesn't start out. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say Frodo is ever evil, but I think it's significant that ultimately even this very likable hobbit gets to Mount Doom to throw the ring in and is unable to bring himself to destroy it. Um, this, this temptation is so strong and it's part of why Gandalf and Galadriel, the, the wizard and the elf, don't even want to touch the ring or, or be associated with it because they know that it feels like this um, this desire for power is something that is not something you can fight purely by strength of will. Um, and I, I think that maybe shines a light on some of the discourse in the lead up to the show about you know people saying that the Lord of the Rings universe is kind of this morally binary good and evil. Uh, and I think the, maybe misses some of how evil affects everyone um, and how this temptation for power is not is something no one is wholly immune to, that the hobbits more so than others. So I guess that was a bit rambling, but can you talk about this uh, this concept of, of Tolkien as sort of very morally black and white and and why that might be missing some of the point? I think you drawing attention to the ring as sort of an emblem of of what evil is and how it functions in Middle-earth is really instructive and enlightening because precisely the ring is, is, if we want to use the word symbol, that's not really the, the right way to talk about a story like The Lord of the Rings, but it certainly embodies evil as the, the power to dominate the power to, uh, to, to, subordinate other wills to your own and and to and to enslave them and this is a desire or a temptation from which nobody is immune in Tolkien's moral universe the best characters the worst characters and if we go back to the idea of of evil as a kind of egoistic or destructive use of the human power of creativity what, what Tolkien is suggesting is that evil is, or the capacity for evil is intimately linked with the best and most important part of us, right? Like it's, it's a fine line that divides the cutting down of a tree to build a house and a fire for your family and cutting down a tree to feed the furnaces of Isengard, right? These, these things are closely linked and it's it is a matter of largely a matter of uh, intention and largely a matter of uh, sensitivity to the interrelationships of in which actions are embedded that that will determine whether our exercise of this creativity is is morally good for Tolkien or morally bad for Tolkien and i think it's telling that in in the lord of the rings not just as frodo fail in a crucial sense in Mount Doom. His his will is not enough to push him uh, to, to, to give up the ring willingly, but that at least twice 
previously in the narrative, he actually uses the ring to to curse Gollum, who is arguably one of the most morally interesting and complicated characters in the Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings, uh, and that it is not ultimately Frodo's own moral goodness that saves the day or his 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 force of will, but it is this series of decisions that have led up to this moment that leave Gollum alive. Uh, that Frodo and and Gandalf and Legolas and Aragorn and a whole host of characters have chosen over and over again to let Gollum live, despite the fact that he has in no way earned this mercy. And that even even arguably maybe the most upstanding moral character in The Lord of the Rings, Sam, uh, has a crucial moment where uh, he wakes up well, Gollum is is looking longingly at Frodo, is on the verge, perhaps, of a of a spiritual breakthrough, and and Sam wakes up and sees him looking at his master and snaps at him and and insults him, and so Sam, the most loyal, the most uh, the moral character in the thing, is loyal literally to a fault in a way that precludes Gollum having the uh, the kind of a redemption moment that he might otherwise have had. So I think that to suggest that, that the Lord of the Rings or Tolkien's work more broadly is is morally simplistic is a fairly shallow reading. I think that Tolkien has a clear sense of what good and evil are, but I also think that there's not one character in the thing who it is not a mix of those and who is not tempted at some point in some way to uh, to, to straying from the path of goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for all the many ways in which Sam acts more admirably than Frodo or anyone else, I I do think his Frodo's kindness to Golem is to Smeagol, as Frodo would say, is right. uh, I think one of the most I don't know one of the things that comes through strongest to me in in both the books and the movies. Yeah, so I think you know we've talked about power as as domination and maybe an interesting alternative to this is um the idea of stewardship uh not as practiced by the steward of gondor denethor um but by uh gandalf the gray wizard eventually the white wizard um and i i want to uh this may be one of a couple quotes that i want to quote at length gandalf says the rule of no realm is mine neither of Gondor nor any other, great or small. But all worthy things that are in peril as the world now stands, those are my care. And for my part, I shall not wholly fail of my task, though Gondor should perish, if anything passes through this night that can still grow fair or bear fruit and flower again in days to come. For I also am a steward, did you not know? And I think there are two things here that are maybe worth discussing further one is this idea of um care for growing things and care for the earth uh and the other is this idea that uh you know success and failure isn't isn't black or white i think in our our ecological crisis you know we won't save every species we won't prevent certain bad effects of climate change um but you know if we can save some you know if if there are still ecosystems that grow fair and bear fruit and flower um then then that is still worth it um so can you talk about kind of this idea of stewardship as it manifests throughout the series sure 
So one of Tolkien's most important themes, from my perspective, is the idea of courage. And courage, which is the willingness to do what is right and what's necessary, even when all signs point to your failure, or at least to your failure in the short term. The whole quest of the ring is a, uh, I think Gandalf describes it somewhat self-deprecatingly, as a fool's hope. The idea that we might actually be able to get the ring through the fences of Mordor to Mount Doom, that we might actually be able to get rid of the power of Sauron rather than use it against him. And that this, and all along the way, characters decide to keep moving forward despite the fact that the odds are stacked against them, despite the fact that the errand will probably probably end in failure but it's important to keep going it's important to resist it's important it's important to keep faith and to remain hopeful not because things will turn out all right for you personally or even for your generation but so that someday in the future there will still be green earth to till. There will still be fair, growing things somewhere. And so I think in, in Tolkien, stewardship is a it's a commitment not just to the good of those who are living now, but to the the possibility for flourishing of those who are yet to come. Because the the overall arc of, of Middle Earth is is a long defeat, Galadriel calls it at one point, that, that there's no ultimate victory, that evil always reappears, and that we are we are moving uh, thing things will get worse before they get better. But to hold out the possibility for, for redemption and restoration and to hold out the possibility that something of what is good from from the past or from the natural world or from or from the the enchantment of the world can be carried forward and i i think one of the things that's most paralyzing about the climate crisis is this sense that our our efforts are meaningless that we've passed the point of no return that we can't hold back the tides of climate change at this point it's just th- things are rapidly spiraling out of our control and i think that can be paralyzing because well why bother why why try to do anything when you can't save the whole world right and 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 why 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 bother trying when things look to there's going to be worse before there's better Mm -hmm. and i think tolkien you know sort of really beautifully articulates a sense of well it's still worth doing it because beauty is always worth carrying forward no matter how little of it may survive that that little is enough and that little may have the capacity to seed something beautiful in the future that we can't yet foresee so that to me is uh one of the strengths of tolkien's vision of stewardship yeah i i relate to that as kind of you know i don't know that ecologically in my life i think i think there are ways in which I strongly hope in my life to see things get better and to see some of that work of care for, for each other and for the more than human world, um, really take off more. Um, but I also know it's sort of, it's things are as far enough gone that I'm going to see things get worse in my lifetime in terms of species losses and, and temperature rises. Um, but, but the arc of my lifetime is not the only arc that matters and, and there is meaning and, um, and exactly what you said. So I, I want to, um, 
I saw on Twitter that you've been reading uh, The Two Towers to Your Kids and recently come across uh, The Ents, which for, you know, for those who don't remember all the all the names, uh, those are the walking, talking, tree-like fellows. Uh, so I, I'm a fan of The Ents. One of actually the the Patreon tiers for this podcast is named after Treebeard, in whose honor I pledge that this podcast won't say anything unless it's worth taking a long time to say. Um, mm. But what is what is the significance of, of Treebeard and the Ents in the story, and why, why are they moving to you? So I grew up on sacred Lakota and Dakota land in the, the Black Hills of South Dakota, and I grew up right in the middle of a national forest. I could walk outside the door of my childhood home and be in the woods in ten minutes. But it wasn't until rereading The Lord of the Rings, actually in my early 20s, and getting to the chapter with the Ents, that I was suddenly like confronted with the, the fact that a tree is a living thing that mm. is, has a totally separate life from me and has a... Uh, inner concerns and that is is valuable in and of itself it's not just an element of the scenery it's not just something that's growing outside my house like there's there's a personhood there it's not a personhood that i can communicate directly at least with human speech but there's there's a person there and that that's true of all trees um it was it was a huge perceptual shift for me and I think one of the things that Tolkien does through the medium of fantasy is by giving us a character like Treebeard and the Ents, who can talk in human language, and who, but who are also very tree-ish. I mean, one of the things that I, that I always feel about the Ents is if, if a tree could, could speak in English, and if a tree had eyes, and if a tree could, could, could interact with me in that way, this, this, it feels so true so true, so true uh, to to what trees are. It feels it feels deeply like perceptive and and honoring of the very nature of, of a tree to me. And I think that I think it's really important. One, one of the things that Tolkien talks about, uh, one of the goals or or possible good impacts of fantasy is something he calls recovery, which is. To, for us to be able to see the world again the way that we were meant to see it. Uh, and, and he says that fantasy does this by taking the things we're already familiar with, so in the case of the ants, trees, and forests, and by adding this bit of enchanted unreality to them, it sort of uh, dehabituates them, right? The tree is no longer just a thing that's growing outside my house. Okay, it's it's a person. Uh, it's, it's part of a community. It's part of a community that is going to take action on its own behalf to defend other members of the community with its own language and its own history and its own culture and songs and, and, and griefs and losses and, and joys and concerns. So that then when I come away from the Lord of the Rings, when I go back into the world, I'm able, I'm able to start seeing the trees around me as Ents, or as mm. being infused with the same something that an Ent is infused with. And to me, that is so, it's so powerful personally, and I think it speaks to why the Lord of the Rings has been such a beloved text for 
so many people, why people talk about feeling at home in Middle-earth or feeling this deep love for the place of Middle-earth, as much as I hear people talk about loving Frodo or Sam or, or Aragorn or any of the characters or even the, the plot of The Lord of the Rings, I hear people talking about loving Middle-earth, feeling like it's a place they know and, and have visited and have spent time. And I think part of that is because through his loving descriptions of of the natural world, of the more-than-human world, and particularly trees, which he seemed to have a special affinity for, Tolkien opens our eyes again to, to that world of which we are a part as something sacred, as something magical, as something enchanted. And when the whole sort of ideological thrust of technologized modernity is, to, is for us to see that world as... Uh, uh, scenery at best and raw material at worst uh, to, to, to recover a sense of, of the holiness of the rest of creation is just so moving. I love that. And I, yeah, I, I love that that is something that fantasy literature can do. There's another character who explicitly, you know, helps us understand that the forest has a life that's apart from ourselves uh, and that's Tom Bombadil. Uh, those of you who have only watched the movies, um, you won't know who Tom Bombadil is, uh, but maybe you've heard of him. He, he shows up toward the beginning of The Fellowship of the Ring when Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin are, uh, are, are traveling um, on their way to Bree. And there's this exchange I, I, I want to quote where... Uh, there's another character, Goldberry, who's there in the house of Tom Bombadil. And Frodo asks Goldberry, like, who is Tom Bombadil? And, and she says, he is, uh, which I love as a response. And, and Frodo, again, is kind of like, well, who is he? She says, quote, he is the master of wood, water, and hill. And then, so Frodo responds, quote, then all this strange land belongs to him? And she says, no, indeed, she answered, and her smile faded. That would indeed be a burden, she added in a low voice, as if to herself. The trees and the grasses and all things growing or living in the land belong each to themselves. Tom Bombadil is the master. And that was one of my favorite exchanges in my whole reread of the books. Uh, And just this, like you said, that they belong each to themselves. They don't belong to someone else. But can you help us? It maybe doesn't totally answer Frodo's question. Uh, so, you know, who is Tom Bombadil and why is this, you know, he, he sings, he, he's kind of a, you know, an odd guy. Why is he in, in this story? There are a couple different levels on which I can answer that question. Um, on a purely technical level of why is Tom Bombadil here, the answer is uh, The Lord of the Rings began when Tolkien was approached by his publisher to write a sequel to The Hobbit. Uh, and so he he set to it, and, and he didn't really have a plot yet. He didn't exactly know what he was doing, so he decided he was going to take The Hobbits on a series of adventures using characters and incidents that he'd already invented in, in other poems and stories. And so Tom Bombadil is a character who goes back in some of Tolkien's poems to the early 1930s. Uh, Goldberry and the Barrow White are also examples of this old man Willow. So this whole section is Tolkien sort of like trying to find his way into the proper plot of The Lord of the Rings. 
And so there's a reason I think that a lot of people, when they hit it, are like, what is happening? Like, I feel like we're just, like, I think we all just got off track for about 150 pages. <laughs> that was eight-year-old me. It was, it was, uh, it was eight-year-old me, too. My first time that I tried to read The Lord of the Rings all the way through, I think I petered out at the Old Forest for very similar reasons. Uh, but when I came back, I, it, I got through it. So that's why Tom Bombadil originally shows up. It's a very sort of technical, like, writerly thing. But why he stayed, I think, is because that whole sequence of the hobbits sort of hiking across the Shire and then getting lost in the old forest and encountering Tom Bombadil and Old Man Willow and Goldberry and this whole sequence shows you just how big and mysterious and wonderful Middle-earth is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Tom Bombadil, I think, is, is meant to be a little bit of an unanswered question, He's mysterious in the same way that certain things in our world are mysterious. He's an unanswered question in the way that many of the things we encounter in life are an unanswered question. But if I were to try to give an answer to him, I would say that he's he's the spirit of that land, right? Like he's an embodiment of the spirit of this particular patch of old forest down along the Withywindle River, in the same way that that Goldberry, his wife, feels very much like a river spirit, she seems like a, um, an embodiment of of riverness, and particularly that river, um, particularly that place. And so, so what what the what the effect of this long this long seemingly desultory passage is for me is it it really sets up the stakes of what could happen. If Sauron gets the ring, right? What will ha- like? What will be destroyed? What will be lost? And one of the things that's going to get lost is these these landscapes that have their own unique spirit and their own unique character, and that exist as things in themselves. Uh, this this world full of of unanswered questions and beautiful landscapes. The Shire. It really sets up the the what the hobbits are fighting for and what everybody else is fighting for. I mean, I think one of the things that Tolkien does so brilliantly throughout The Lord of the Rings is in these long passages that involve a lot of walking um, and descriptions of landscapes, he's telling us that Middle-earth matters. He's spending time on describing Middle-earth as as a way to tell us that this is important, that the things that we're not used to in modernity paying attention to things like the plants by the roadside, the shape of the hills, the sort of laughing spirit of a river valley or a forest. These things are all important and they deserve to have time taken to talk about them and to be inside of them. And this is what we lose when Sauron and Saruman win. This is what we lose when the world is disenchanted and the earth is tortured for gain. And so I think Though they don't advance the plot per se, I think that Tom and Goldberry are actually end up being really crucial to the theme of the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I I agree. On my reread, I I understand why they're not in the movie because I don't know. He I don't know what actor could pull off all his rhyming songs and <laughs> and what director could pull off you know what extended detour early in the action. Um, but I it does add so much thematically that this is a world that that is old that is full of bursting with life and that life has spirit and yeah that there is 
there are things in this world that matter, um, you know, which, which the movie to their credit, I think do try to get across second conversations with Pippin and Mary about, you know, Pippin wants to go back to the Shire and Mary, there won't be a Shire and, and Frodo and Sam, you know, Frodo forgetting the taste of strawberries and the touch of grass, uh, you know, that they are fighting for a living world. Um, but I do, you know, again, I went from being eight years old and being unable to finish Tom Bombadil and to being, you know, in my late twenties and it was one of my favorite parts. So another thing that matters, uh, to, to Tolkien and, and to his world in writing is the, the other animals, the beasts of Middle Earth. Um, and, you know, one thing I love is, uh, you know, his, how he writes about Bill the Pony, um, or, or Shadowfax, or even, even the, the horses that the, the, the black riders, the, um, the Nazgul ride, um, you know, the text takes time to explain why they behave the way they do, how they tolerate certain writers and choose not to tolerate other writers. Um, and, and yeah, kind of, they are, they're treated as beings with agency who's, who act for reasons, not just for the plot. Um, and who's, who it matters what happens to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, another thing I noticed, um, so, so far as I can tell, Tolkien was not vegetarian or didn't think about that but there are vegetarian characters uh who pop up and they're typically it's sort of a sign of uh not wanting to kill animals is, is a sign of virtue so in in the silmarillion we have baron um who's a human who's kind of one of the more heroic figures and he became the friend of birds and beasts and they aided him and did not betray him and from that time forth he ate no flesh nor slew any living thing that was not in the service of Morgoth. Um, and, you know, in, in The Hobbit, there's the character Bjorn who shifts into bear, uh, can shift into a bear, and he doesn't eat, uh, you know, wild animals or his domestic cattle. And then, you know, there's Faramir, who, I don't know if Faramir eats meat, but he, he does say in the book that he, I do not slay man or beast needlessly and not gladly even when it is needed. And in context, he's not talking about beasts. There's no reason for him, you know, he could have just said, I do not slay man needlessly um but you know it's the hobbits too are described as as for sport killing nothing that lived so it's just kind of and the by contrast you get the orcs who you know as they make their path they they trample vegetation heedlessly as legolas describes and uh you get you know in the the visual logic of the movies which is actually part of what led me to to go back and read the books was just noticing how um eating flesh is often gross uh so you have golem eating you know raw fish or raw rabbits or you have denethor chomping on chicken and and cherry tomatoes while he sends his son possibly to die um and it's really i don't have a better word than than gross or disgusting um and you know, it, it comes to he wrote in a an essay on on fantasy and fairy stories and myth um, about this desire that he believes we have to his phrases hold communion with other living beings. He uses that phrase twice, um, and yeah, I, I, I think uh, there is just this way in which every every creature and not every creature is good necessarily. 
um, in some of the great wars, there there are beasts and birds who take the sides of of the enemy of Sauron or Morgoth, but just that they are they are players. They are not background. Um, does that does that make sense? It absolutely does. I think pointing to that that line in his essay on fairy stories that that one of the things that fantasy does for us is enables us at least in imagination to you know to hold concourse in with with other animals or with trees or with other living things in their own language right is uh it's a really powerful thing that fantasy can do for us in an essay he wrote toward the end of his life about his his novella uh, Smith of Wooden Major, he talks about one, one of the hearts of a fairy of this kind of elusive quality of, of elvish enchantment that he, he spends so much of his work chasing or attempting to describe or attempting to evoke, but that the heart of it is love of the other as other. Hmm. Right, love of the other as something that is not the self, and that that's beautiful and wonderful and good, actually. And so... We do see this in Middle Earth in in his treatment of of animals. You might think of the eagles of the Misty Mountains, or of Juan, the the great hound in the Silmarillion and the story of Baron. Um, even the fox, who early in the, the the Lord of the Rings and the books in the Fellowship of the Ring sees hobbits traveling at night, and we get a, a bizarre little. P- point of view shift into his perspective as he's like, four hobbits traveling at night. Well, it hasn't been seen in a long time. <laughs> but the, the all of which accumulates to say that you're exactly right, that animals are, are others who are worthy of consideration in their own right. And I think in much the same way that Tolkien you know, objects to the wanton hewing of trees and sort of the destruction of of the the plant ecosystem that there's there's a similar sense not as fully brought out but i think it's it's part and parcel of of his ecological ethos that that the wanton killing the needless killing of of animals is is also a mark of evil uh that it that it represents a disregard for other forms of life um, and for Tolkien, you know, as, as as a Catholic, again, this was part of his sense that because the world is created by God, the world is good. The world is fundamentally something that has value, not dependent upon human beings for its value, right? That the, the, the world is a place that is not brought, um, that is not valuable by virtue of its utility, but rather by virtue of being created, um, and so I think you see that in, in the way that he treats animals, just as much as the way that he treats uh, trees and, and other growing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, it's even in the way that he treats, um, you know, the the more humanoid creatures, you know, as much as Aragorn is, you know, the rightful inherited king and characters like Gandalf and Elrond and and Aragorn and Gladriel are, you know, are great and powerful. The the main characters are hobbits who, you know, kind of <laughs> don't they don't have a, a king or anything, uh, you know, or they they don't really recognize it, uh, or it doesn't play much role in their lives. Uh, and um, you know, Elrond says at Rivendell. Such is oft the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. Um, and, you know, reading that reminded me of the old labor song, Solidarity Forever, 
they sing without our brain and muscles not a single wheel can turn um and yeah that the i think this is part of what makes middle earth somewhere to be or somewhere to that i enjoy being is that the the doings of of everyone at every social scale and every ecological scale are important and good and and something that matters absolutely um so i i want to bring in uh the rings of power tv show briefly um i think yeah one of the things that has so as we've discussed it's <laughs> the fact that even that it's called the rings of power um hopefully the the writers are have read uh presumably read the source material and understand that power is a, a dangerous thing for tolkien and i think one of the things i'm interested in is uh you know in when we read or watch the fellowship of the ring galadriel is tempted by the ring by the prospect of becoming a queen the power it could bring her uh and she turns it down um i passed the test um and i feel like the version of galadriel that we see in the show is consumed um consumed with this idea of vengeance against sauron um and while she is you know badass action hero and to me anyway that is also cool uh i i'm curious to see we get this this speech from the the high king of the elves about how you know a wind can snuff out a fire but can also fan the embers or something like that um and this idea that the being consumed with with vengeance for her or even just the re- the other elves in the south who are kind of militarily occupying uh the human um settlements uh just kind of that this yeah that sort of dedicating everything to defeating evil is in its own way tempting you toward evil that is what i'm getting but i don't know or you know it remains to be seen if that is a direction that the showrunners choose to go um but anyway i'm i'm sort of interested in as you, someone who I think is is maybe more intimately, I read the appendices and stuff, but I I get the sense you uh, are more intimately familiar with the lore than I do. You know what in the show is working for you, and what isn't in terms of how it's manifesting some of the themes we're talking about. So, having only seen the two episodes that have been released as of this recording, I'm withholding judgment on on the show as a whole, or even on this season as a whole. I am notoriously picky when it comes to my Tolkien adaptations, Uh, so it should be, what I say in terms of critique should be taken with a grain of salt in that Tolkien is really hard to adapt for a whole number of reasons. One of them, I think, is his ecological consciousness. Um, The Mm -hmm. care and attention that he gives to the natural environment, and particularly the way that he uses fantasy to evoke a connection between the reader and and that more than human world is not impossible to do on screen but i think it can be it can be difficult so so one of the things tolkien talks about in his essay on fairy stories 
in one of the footnotes is that the power of a verbal fantasy, so of a novel or, or something you hear spoken aloud, is that it doesn't give you an image to work from, right? It gives you a description. The author uh, sort of paints a picture for you with words, but that it is you who are bringing the memory of every forest you've ever known and loved and of particular trees that have been important to you and the sort of imaginative aura of enchantment that only the human imagination sort of can construct. So there's this co-creative process between what the, the author gives you in terms of words and your own imagination building up a world that feels real and feels enchanted for you. And, and one of the limitations of the visual medium is that it gives you a single image, right? And that image maybe is going to work for you or it's not going to work for you. Uh, but it's it's not necessarily going to do the same kind of work that that a description of something is going to do in terms of pulling in your imagination. So so far in the show, I I haven't personally felt enchanted by the the visuals of the natural world. We've seen a bit of the Elf Kingdom Linden. We've seen uh, the Southlands, which you mentioned, as uh, um, which is according to the map, later in the show, going to become Mordor. Um, so it'll be interesting to see this sort of lush, green, mountainous landscape transformed into the hideous industrial wasteland that we all know and loathe from the Lord of the Rings. Uh, but mm-hmm. overall, I haven't felt the same sense of enchantment, and that is probably down largely to personal taste. Um, I think there are also certain limitations of fantasy television filmmaking that make it hard to give the kind of attention and intention to the, the natural environment that, that Tolkien does in his writing. Uh, when I think of filmmakers offhand who, who successfully achieved this, I think of actually uh, Hayao Miyazaki, mm-hmm. Studio Ghibli Films, who although in many ways very different from Tolkien, I think has a lot of the same concerns around ecology and the impact of industrialization and modernity and, and a concern for re-enchanting the world. And something that Miyazaki does really effectively um, is it, the both by having it be animated, so there's already a little bit of an element of fantasy involved in turning a landscape from from a from an image of a real landscape into a, into a drawing or into a painting, but then the way that he uses long shots and wide shots and like the pacing of a Miyazaki film is very slow and deliberate, even though there can be lots of action. Um, the the amount of time that's spent in a film like like Princess Mononoke or, or My Neighbor Totoro on the, the more than human world is uh, is pretty enormous compared to what you'd find in a analogous Western film. So mm-hmm. so through the use of, of, of the visual medium with, with, with Miyazaki, he's able to sort of, I think, do some similar things that Tolkien does with words in, in his novels. Um, I haven't seen that, or I, ha- I haven't felt that in the new series yet. It's also possible that we just haven't spent enough time there yet, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, uh, in in terms of, you know, the themes, ecological themes, and these themes of power and domination, I am really interested to see where the series goes because it has some opportunities for some really powerful. Uh, um, it has some really powerful source material in terms of the story of, of a Region and the forging of the rings of power 
and the rise and fall of Numenor. Um, the in in Eregion, which is where Celebrimbor, the smith, is the the one who leads the way on forging the rings of power. Tolkien writes in a 1951 letter to to the publisher Milton Waldman that this is as close as elves ever come in Middle Earth to falling prey to the machine, to becoming technologists or industrialists. Mm. And we already see some of this in in the the few scenes we've had with Celebrimbor in the show so far, where he wants to build a, a forge hotter and more powerful than any other yet made. Uh, we can reasonably assume he's going to make rings in it. Um, but but so so here's an opportunity to show how the the elvish concern for beauty and for craft can become twisted into into the domination of the natural world and, and the rings of power as a kind of power over as opposed to a uh, sort of creative co-creative power with. The other big one is uh, is Numenor and particularly Numenor as it, uh, it at its zenith is is a colonial power, is an imperial power and is framed not in an entirely positive light. Uh, by Tolkien, uh, we we talked earlier about Fangorn Forest, where Treebeard lives, and the Old Forest, where Tom Bombadil lives. And in the Fellowship of the Ring, Elrond says that the time was when a squirrel could leap from tree to tree, all the way from Fangorn to the Old Forest. By the time of the Lord of the Rings, huge swaths of that forest have been destroyed, and that is largely due to the Numenorians' uh, colonization of Middle Earth and cutting down all those trees to build ships. So we have opportunities here, I think, to see like really strong uh, ecological themes play out, and particularly as we get to watch Middle-earth be actively despoiled, whether it's the, the, the Southlands turning into Mordor or the forests of Eregion getting cut down by the Numenorians and by, and by Celebrimbor and his smiths. So there's, there's some potential here, but we just haven't gotten far enough in the series to see whether that potential is realized or not. That was a kind of long and rambling answer to your question. No, but I, I appreciate it, and I, I think, uh, yeah, that there is a difference between someone like me who was first exposed to the story through the movie where my picture of middle earth is new zealand uh and i didn't you know i understand as someone who had a vivid picture before the movies or separate from the movies that it would never quite be able to capture that um but yeah i i will say that for me, watching the movie, watching the new show, there's scenes where it's like, oh, like New Zealand's pretty, and like that, <laughs> that brings me in enough, uh, at, you know, at least to to be enjoying it and to be, yeah, I think, curious where it goes and how it, um, you know, brings in these complicated themes from what I could, you know, worst case scenario could be kind of more simplistic, you know, good and evil war. Um, yeah, so I I, uh, I know we're at an hour, but um, I have two other quick questions, or Great. who knows if they'll be quick. And I, and I should clarify, again, uh, my issues with the Rings of Power are 100% me problems. Uh, <laughs> if, if you're enjoying it out there, do not let, them, do not let me stop you. <laughs> I mean, I will say <laughs> it is uh, unfortunate, just because I know that this podcast, me putting in the world in some way, is beneficial for the Rings of Power TV show. It is extremely unfortunate that it is 
put on in the project of Jeff Bezos and Amazon, which is a force for domination and ecological destruction in the world. Right. Um, so I don't know. I feel I need to put that disclaimer in that I am sad about that. Um, <laughs> so you, you, you brought up kind of the, the, this is a general thing fantasy can do. Do you, do you read much other fantasy? Is there much other fantasy that you feel strongly about? I am not as widely read in in the genre as some people, but I love fantasy. It's one of my favorite genres. Uh, I, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Neil Gaiman and and Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, I have not read as much of the work of N.K. Jemisin as I perhaps ought to, but I know that she um, is is a another example of somebody who really brings these questions of ecology to the fore in, in her forays into fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, around the, right after I read the Lord of the Rings uh, in 2020, early in the pandemic, I read a uh, TH White's once in future King mm-hmm. the book of Merlin about, um, you know, Arthurian legend. And I was struck sort of unexpectedly there too, finding um, that animal like, young Arthur gets all of his lessons on how to be a king from animals, from fish and birds and, and, uh, you know, Merlin's one of the main ways his power is shown is not unlike Gandalf and Radagast is his ability to talk with other creatures and, and enable Arthur to, to learn from them. Um, so yeah, it kind of, since I've read this, I've been feeling how it goes deep in the genre um, and then when I read contemporary fantasy like Jemison, I mean, I know she may or may not be particularly influenced by the sort of old white British canon, but the, yeah, just kind of seeing it as a through line in the genre, including Ursula Le Guin, who you mentioned. The last thing I want to bring up is this quote from Smaug, Smog, uh, the, the dragon in The Hobbit, um, who, when his things are stolen, has quote, the sort of rage that is only seen when rich folks that have more than they can enjoy suddenly lose something that they have long had but have never before used or wanted. And I think it's it's kind of a funny idea um, of just like, oh, he, you know, he had no idea or any purpose for the stuff he had, but as soon as it's gone, all of a sudden it was his favorite thing. Um, and also I think a, a, a useful contrast to how hobbits are portrayed as living um, kind of more, you know, in holes in the ground relatively more simply. Um, I wonder if you can, can speak to kind of the portrayals of, of simple life versus excess. So I think this is where Tolkien achieved exactly the right balance in the Lord of the Rings compared to, say, the Silmarillion, which is largely taken up with the rise and fall of kingdoms and with the doings of the great and powerful, uh, and I, I think is makes for fascinating reading and thematically is, in, in terms of just the sheer world building, is, is brilliant and just really interesting. But I think The Lord of the Rings is the clearest place where we get this, the sense of the importance of the small and the humble, that that small hands do these deeds because they must. There is, in Tolkien, I think, a... Like, like we began the show talking about, the way in which great power, and of course wealth confers power, uh, in most societies, 
so there, there's a there's a distrust of the way in which the just simply having power is is corrupting. Just having access to this massive amount of wealth or being having something belong to you. I mean, I think that quote from Goldberry that you brought up of that would be a great burden to have this land belong to you to be in in, in control of it somehow. The way that that has a sort of corrosive effect on the soul and on and on the spirit. And I think that The Lord of the Rings does this incredibly subversive thing where it is consistently through abnegating power that evil is defeated. It is... I mean, even, even Aragorn, you know, the rightful king coming back into his own, he is shown to be the king by being a healer, and it is his decision at the uh, in the lead up to the final battle uh, after the battle of the Pelennor has been won and the the forces of the West are trying to decide what to do. Uh, Aragorn and and the other captains decide they are going to march into the the jaws of Sauron's attack. They are going to basically stage a feint so that Sam and Frodo have a better chance at getting to Mount Doom. That this war cannot ultimately be won by force of arms, but is going to be won by sacrifice. Is going to be won by willingly putting oneself in the line of fire. Is going to be won by dogged persistence, by the love and care shown for each other by two hobbits of the Shire. A by all accounts, fairly quote unquote unimportant corner of the world. Um, I think this is the Lord of the Rings is Tolkien's masterpiece in the way that it brings together the high and the beautiful and the heroic with the simple and the everyday and the um, you know hobbits. Hobbits show a kind of heroism that most of us can aspire to. Mm-hmm. Right, it, most of us aren't going to be a Gandalf or an Aragorn or even a Legolas or a Gimli. Um, we're not going to be elf or dwarf princes or you know the, the king returning to his throne and having these kinds of intense spiritual powers like someone like Galadriel or Elrond. But hobbits are basically modern people dropped into a, 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 a pre-modern world and who are shown to be very different from that world in a lot of ways, but still still in relationship with it, still made of the same stuff as that world, and still able to contribute in their uniquely humble way. And I think that that speaks to, um, you know, particularly in these moments when, going back to our response to, to climate crisis, you know, we may not be able to to challenge Bezos or challenge ExxonMobil in terms of, you know, sheer sheer force of of wealth and power but we do have the ability to to work toward a more sustainable toward a more integrated world at the local level to fight for the rights of of the common person of workers of the earth itself to stand with communities that are grounded in the same kind of ecological ethos that I think Tolkien, or a similar kind of ecological ethos that Tolkien brings to the fore. Um, you know, I think there are vast differences of culture and history, of course, between something like 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 Gerard Tolkien and, and the Lakota people where, where I grew up in South Dakota. But I see a similar, or I see similar concerns for the sanctity of the earth and, and for the importance of, of community and continuity 
between those things. So I think I think that hobbits provide the hinge point that allow us to move from just another fantasy about nobles and elves and wizards and and enable us to see ourselves as potential heroes of 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 a struggle for the good of this world that we're we call home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that there are there's superficially reactionary ways one can read the story of kind of a absolutely a darker skinned other intruding from the south into these pastoral British farmers and threatening their way of life, but but I yeah I, I guess I think fully engaging with what's there there is also and I think much more strongly uh, this ultimately more emancipatory ultimately more like uh you know like you said appreciating the other as other and a more wondrous holer view of life um and the importance of fighting for it that's there um so is there anything else on any of this you want to add well amen to all that and i think that you know we have to acknowledge the problematic elements and the indeed reactionary elements of the story and of the world but i think you're right on it in saying that if we if we really follow the ethos of tolkien's world and his work through that we come to this place of uh, profound wonder at creation and at those of us who partake in it so that's what i got cool so that was uh, the Reverend Tom Emmanuel. Um, look out for his uh, PhD dissertation in a few years. And uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. You know, throughout that conversation, I was thinking of a quote from Ursula K. Le Guin in an essay she wrote about fantasy literature. Uh, quote, I venture a non-defining statement. Realistic fiction is drawn towards anthropocentrism fantasy away from it. Although the green country of fantasy seems to be entirely the invention of human imaginations, it verges on and partakes of realms in which humanity is not lord and master, is not even important. And I think that gets to um, a lot of what Tom was saying about the role that the Ents and Tom Bombadil uh, play in sort of redefining our worldviews and and redefining our place in the world um, and, you know, putting us as part of the rest of the world and not dominating over it you know it's also i guess been a long-running discussion on this show of uh you know rooted in the work of amitabh ghosh and others of sort of how literature can respond to the um respond to the call of the ecological crisis um and really incorporate non-human agency and voices and one answer is that fantasy has been doing this for a long time um so Again, if you're interested in joining the book club, we'll be discussing The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler Thursday, October, or excuse me, Thursday, September 29th at 8.30 Eastern. Thanks so much. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. com.